We have um, been in Genesis, if you want to turn there, chapter 3, verse by verse, working through the creation week, the beginning of time. Last week, we looked at the account of Adam and Eve uh, in eating of the forbidden fruit, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and trying to apply it in a way that was not just a historical account, but application for us, and, and hopefully we're gleaning from this that not just these chapters can apply to us, but every chapter, every word, every verse of the Bible has application for us. And so that's my goal in this, is not only that we would look at these uh, critical chapters and recognize that these are not just things for, for us to have fun stories or illustrations. or you know, God was making a point in telling us these things and putting these things into His Word, and, and they still have relevance and pertinence to us today. Uh, we looked last week at the nakedness and really ultimately how man, although was not created naked in the beginning, that there's a useful illustration here of Jesus clothing us in His righteousness. And we looked at Revelation and, and being clothed in white robes, which are the righteous acts of the saints. And, and all throughout the Word of God and in Psalms, we have this picture of this festival, this marriage day, this wedding day of the bride being adorned in her gold linen, her fine white silk clothes. And, and this is what we have to look forward to. It's not that nakedness is in and of itself evil, but God has a picture, an illustration for us, is that really He wants to clothe us back in His, in his righteousness. And that's, uh, we get this looking at, um, again, chapter 3 of Genesis. We looked at the deception of Eve and, and how she was deceived of the serpent and the, the pertinence and how it r- relates today for the church and being aware of false prophets. If, if you think yourself above Eve and say, oh, I wouldn't have been deceived, then you've already uh, taken one step in the wrong direction. We need to be on guard. We need to stand firm and be aware of the false falsities of the enemy. He's the father of lies. He's the de- a murderer from the beginning. And um, he is doing everything he can to get into church, to get into schools, to get into governments, and he is going to deceive. Um, and he has been, and he will continue to do so. And even as the last days approach, if possible, to deceive the elect. And so we need to be on guard about that as a church. Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to start back in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. 
The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The sound, verse 8, the sound, not voice, a better rendering is sound, of Yahweh walking in the garden. And we know it's sound, I mean, you can gather that just from walking, footsteps don't make voices, but the word is sound or voice, and it's the sound of Yahweh walking through the garden in the your translation probably says cool, might say cool of the day, but really the word is ruah, which is ruach, or spirit of the day. They heard the presence of Yahweh God walking through the garden in the spirit, or breath, or wind of the day. It's rather an unfortunate translation that it says cool, if it does, for it is the same word as spirit, ruach. Now, we associate, there's a couple theories behind this, and some say, actually, it should be translated as the Holy Spirit walking through the garden. Some say that this is really just describing a spirit of the day, and that translation is also used and applied in Zechariah. Some say that it's the wind of the day, which is the cool part of the day. We'll leave it up to you to decide, but know that it is the same word as breath, wind, and we also apply to the Holy Spirit. There is no doubt in my mind that this is the pre-incarnate Christ, a theophany. It's an appearance of God in physical form. Of course, if you know the Scriptures, you certainly would understand that the Word of God tells us no man has seen God or can see God, and we get this from 1 Timothy 6.16. And so it's not Father God in flesh, now, of course, this is merely a logical deduction that it would be Jesus because no verse proves that it can be proven through Scripture that it's Jesus. The Word of God does not claim that it's Jesus. It just says that it's Yahweh God. And we know or we believe and teach that the Trinity of the Holy Spirit is, or Trinity of God is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and there's three persons in one. And when it's describing God, it could be any one of these. But the reason I believe it's the pre-incarnate Christ or more specifically a Christophany a theophany is the physical appearance of God, theos meaning God, Christophany, Christ, Christophany is an appearance of Christ, is we see this all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it says the Lord appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 22. Jesus, I believe, or God in some form appeared to Abraham and gave blessings over him. Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with God. Who might that have been? There was an angel of the Lord which appeared and visited Moses in the burning bush. And, and we understand that that was not just an angel of God in the burning bush, but when there's that phrase tacked on, angel of Yahweh, it's in capital L-O-R-D, this is probably talking about some other person or figurehead. We also see that same phrase through other places. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. I believe it was Christ Jesus in physical form. The angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar after she was sent away because she was teasing Sarah and, and they sent her away and God says, no, I'm going to put a blessing over you and your son. And there was water she found came to a well and she returned back to her master. The angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's mother Manoah when he was set apart from the womb. We also know to Joshua that the captain of the host of the Lord appeared to him in Joshua chapter 5. And so there's, there's little bits and pieces throughout the Old Testament of 
the angel of the Lord, or God appearing in some way, shape, or form to people, I believe that it was Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, who would walk with Adam and Eve, although there is not one verse that can point to that specifically. And so, the man and the wife, they hear God coming. What did they do? Verse 8 says, they hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh Elohim. I don't know if I could think of a more heartbreaking phrase in all of the Word of God. To hide yourself from the presence of God. Isn't this the greatest gift imaginable? To be with God. And in this couple that was given that gift to be able to fellowship with God in this intimate way of walking with Him in the spirit or wind or perhaps cool of the day, here they were now after simply eating fruit, afraid of His very presence. Their eyes were opened. They didn't even want to be with God any longer. The sound of Him walking, no doubt, would cause, him, cause them joy now, cause them to fear. And that is just how sin works. It takes something that we love and it twists it and gives you a fear. Now the truth is that you can't actually hide from God. For of course we know that He is omniscient and He's omnipresent, that He's all-knowing, that He's everywhere. And David says, Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. God is everywhere. He's among us. He, can, he knows exactly where we are. But this verse in Genesis 3, I believe, is teaching us that one of the consequences to sin is that it separates us from God. Now, I've heard Christians say, well, that's not the case. Sin doesn't actually separate you from God. It just keeps you from being able to get to His presence. And they argue some sort of weird distinction, and I've never been able to follow it. But scripturally, we know in Isaiah 59, Isaiah the prophet even brought out and explained, it says, your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. Something happens between us and God when we sin. Because God is perfect, because God is so holy, it's, it's not so much that He's afraid of sin, that I believe, it's that He would swallow us up and we would be forced to death because of His holiness. And so He protects us by, by pushing us out of His presence because He knows that we would die if we saw Him face to face. That's what I believe is a picture that we get through the whole Word of God. Moses asked to see Him, said, God, can I see your face? And God says, no, but I'll let you see my back. And he covered him as he passed by. I believe to spare Moses from death, for the word tells us, again, that no man can see God and live. That's the picture that we need to understand. It's not that God is afraid of you. He doesn't want to swallow you up with his righteousness, his holiness. Now, we can get there in the blood of Jesus. That's the picture that we have to understand about the cross. It's not just, Lord, thank you for dying for me. It's, Lord, thank you that I've been washed in the precious blood of Jesus, that now I can restore that relationship and stand before you again. With Adam and Eve, that had this relationship with God, now they were afraid. But thanks be to God that by Jesus, He's called us out of darkness and brought us back into light. 
He has given us a foretaste of His very presence through the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It's a taste of God's presence. See, before Jesus came, that once-for-all atonement, man was without access to God. But now we in Christ Jesus can have a foretaste of His very presence again. You see, the sin which entered into the world through Adam's disobedience, it impedes and it hinders our fellowship with God. And so without the cross, we would be left to hearing about God through priests or through the Scriptures, the Torah, the law. But even the priest, the high priest, had to go through all of his purification and ritual just to meet with God one time, once a year. That's the significance of that curtain being torn in the temple. God was giving us back access to His very presence. What a travesty. Adam and Eve walked with God, but now they were afraid of His presence. May we not act in the same way. I just wonder, church, if you've ever tried to hide from His presence. Or do you value and you honor it? You say, I can't wait to go to assemble with my brothers and sisters in Christ to be in His very presence. Or is it a dread? I can't believe we've got to go back again. We were just there six days ago. Pastor wants us to come to Sunday school, prayer meeting on Wednesday. What is this guy on? Do you value and honor the presence of God? Because see, what you, what you experience together with the assembly, when two or three are gathered together, that's what the ecclesia is. That's the assembly, the church. Anytime we gather together in His name, His presence is among us. My question is this, what are you doing that is more important than being in His presence? That might hurt a little. Let's move on. Moses said to God, as the people were being led around by the cloud by day and the fire by night, they're out in the wilderness, God says, okay, Moses, take them up to the promised land. He's gotten them out. He's rescued them. They've crossed over the Red Sea. God says, all right, Moses, you got everything you need. Go. And Moses says, no way. I'm not going if your presence does not go with me. I'm not taking one more step. These are, this is your problem, God. If you're not coming with me, I'm not going. And yet, what did the very people that Moses didn't really want to lead do when they got to experience God's presence? Here, Moses, here's the, just, let's just compare and contrast here. Moses says, I'm not going anywhere without you. The people got a taste of God's presence on Mount Sinai. Do you remember? God descended down on the, the mountain and there's thundering and lightning. And what did they say? They were so afraid of the majesty and the awesomeness of God. They said, Moses, we don't want to talk to him anymore. You just tell us what he says. Are you afraid of his presence? Or are you like Moses and don't want to go anywhere without his presence? Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God. See, it's the realization of our sin that makes us tremble before a mighty God. It's a depraved mind that could care less about the 
blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. It's a depraved mind that doesn't know any better. But we in Christ Jesus are sometimes carrying this burden of shame still. And we think that, well, I can't go in God's presence because I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough. And so we tend to do these little things where we kind of hide ourselves. Oh, beloved, make sure you understand the goodness of God. The preciousness of His blood that has washed you. Whiter than snow. As far as the east is from the west, He's what? Removed your transgressions from you. And so we don't have any reason to carry the shame anymore. If, if that's what you're experiencing is a, a little bit of shame on your back, oh, lay it down at His feet. Say, I am no longer a slave to sin. I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So much of the world today knows nothing of the reverence for the Father. Yes, we ought to be reverent. Yes, when we come into His presence, we ought to extol Him for His might and His fame and His sheer awesomeness. Louis likes to tell a story of his realization of God being in the thunder and the powerfulness and the awesomeness of God and how even in the small things of weather we can learn and, and meet with God. This is how we ought to be. We ought to teach our children and our children's children and our children's children's children that, that sin draws and pulls you down and pulls you away from the presence of God, but yet there is one in, that, in whom we can come back near to God, and that's in the name of Jesus Christ. Sometimes even our own walk, we go through periods of disobeying God because we're drawn to things of the world through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. When we go down this path, we end up essentially hiding from God, which is the last thing we should be doing. In fact, the very thing that we should be doing is running to Him and, and seeking out His forgiveness and seeking out His grace and His mercy. We should be running to Him for help, for restoration. Sometimes we run and hide from the Lord. Beloved, if that's you, return to Him. He has come to make a way for you to be healed from your sin, to cover you with His righteousness, to put on garments of righteousness and purity. Come to His presence and let your heart and your mind be on Jesus. Just as God covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve and He gave them garments, you need to clothe yourself with Christ that, you, that He may lead you. Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh that you would gratify its desires. So I encourage you this morning, do not hide from God any longer. Instead, run to Him. Seek Him. Seek forgiveness. Clothe yourself with Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to lead you. Instead of hiding, may we as a church look forward and expectantly to our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the, our great and God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Seek His face, church. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Verse 10, Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked. You can insert a teaching about modesty here. No, really. There, isn't there something about the presence of Yahweh God which should stir a healthy fear and self-evaluation within us? That we don't just come flippantly to church. Now, we ought not be flippant about anything regarding our dress, even outside of church. But just for a moment, bear with me. Not that there's something shameful about the human body, for it's true that certainly, yes, they were both naked and they were without shame before they ate of the fruit. But it's that the pollution of the human body 
For it's true that as they ate of it, they were polluted in their depravity and, and, and their mind got off of God and now they were opened up to all sorts of opportunities to sin. They were inventors of evil, both physical and otherwise. Now Adam, he understood, he had knowledge of what was good and evil. He understood his ability to inflict harm on Eve, on his children. And not only did he feel shame for his disobedience, he felt fear for the first time. He was afraid of God and afraid that there might be further damage caused by his own depravity. And so he tried to hide himself and he he tried to sew fig leaves together because he recognized something was different about his body. Not that it was sinful, but that here I am. I can't act like this around God anymore. I can't just be loose and free anymore around my wife. Now, I don't want to spend too much time teaching on modesty this morning, and that's partly due to the fact that I don't believe you ladies represented here are particularly pushing that boundary of modesty. That said, there certainly have been some younger ones among us in the past couple of years that need to hear this, needed to hear this, and probably still need to hear this. I want to read a verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you're taking notes, it's 9 and 10. It says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making claim to godliness. Ladies, you set an example in your dress. And even though in this room you do a good job of keeping the attention off yourself, I thank you for that. That said, I'm not going to let you off the hook quite yet. I want to remind you that it is also your duty to the younger ladies to teach them in how they should act and in how they should dress. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. And here's what the modesty conversation must center around. It should care more about their hearts than their outfits. When you talk with someone about modesty, it should, you should be more caring about godliness than their clothing. When someone comes in dressed inappropriately for the Lord's presence or otherwise, be reminded that you have a duty to show them a better way. Yes, absolutely, men can dress inappropriately too. But don't miss the point. We have a responsibility to correct in gentleness and in love. First and foremost, we should, our goal should be to restore them. And each of us has a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ not to put them in an opportunity where they could be tempted. When we assemble, the focus should be on God and not on how good we look. That's what Paul was saying. Braided hair, gold, all these garments and modesty. You know, we should come in and not have to worry about who's looking at me. Now, Adam was naked. He was naked and afraid. I want to speak of another aspect of Adam's fear here this morning. This is that topic of shame. I want to further pull this out. King David, if you remember, he was a powerful man. Let's just go to him in thought for a minute. Powerful man who abused his power, I would argue, to sleep with another man's wife. But sure enough, his sin found him out, didn't it? Why? That woman got pregnant. What luck, he must be thinking. Although Bathsheba purified herself after he lay with her, 
we have no record of David doing the same. 2 Samuel chapter 11, 4. Soon enough, David would not only find out about her pregnancy, but he would then double down out of fear of his wickedness being exposed, and he tried to hide it with a murder. There was a woman. She had been suffering for, from a hemorrhage for 12 years, bleeding. All that time, she was unclean, not able to enter the temple. She was certainly uncomfortable. She certainly was uncomforted. But when she saw Jesus heal others, she longed to receive his touch. But how could she ask him for healing in front of so many people? She thought she might try to hide in the crowd and simply touch the fringe of his robe. Do you see? Shame convinces us to hide in the wrong places. And like David, we too try to cover up our sins by committing even more egregious sins. Maybe it's just me that's done that. We, like the bleeding woman, hide among the crowds so that we can conceal our hurt and our pain. I don't want them to find out about this. Oh God, how could I share that? We are no different than Adam, freshly aware of our shame, lonely, sinful, and afraid. We hide in the privacy of our homes. We bury ourselves in our work. We hide in activities of cleaning and cooking and yard work and recreation. We hide behind computers and phones and televisions. We hide behind fashion. We hide behind education. We hide behind our careers and behind our wealth. We put on a facade. We paint ourselves to to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to dress a certain way so that the world would not see how we actually live. We hide behind Facebook feeds. And Twitter likes, we are no different than Adam. We are people that still struggle to give over our shame to Christ. But there's hope for us. There's a freedom that is found in Christ Jesus. And if you want to experience it, you must simply humble yourselves before Him and confess your sin. And while shame declares you guilty, Christ Jesus declares over you guiltless. While that serpent may accuse you sinner, Jesus intercedes washed. When we trust in Him for our righteousness, shame will lose its grip on you and it loses its power over you. And that's what happened to King David. He confessed his sin and he repented. When he trusted in God for forgiveness, his guilt and his shame was imputed to him. He became one of the few that was found faithful. It was David that turned to God. It was David that turned to Christ Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, and he understood and his gift was full forgiveness. And that's what happened to the hemorrhaging woman. She tried to hide, but you know what happened? Jesus said, who touched me? He brought attention to her. Jesus knew good and well who touched him. Why did he do it? He forced her to come out from hiding, to come out from her shame. And in that moment, Jesus took her shame and made it a showcase for his glory. Why do we hide? Jesus beckons, come, let me take your shame and turn it into something good. Beloved, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, we can be in right relationship with God, and we live without shame and condemnation. We are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer have anything else to hide. When we confess and believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, 
We have to no longer identify with our sin. Rather, our identity is secure in Christ. And it's freedom and forgiveness and victory. Verse 11 of Genesis 3, we get on down, it says, God's talking to them. He says, who told you that you're naked? How did Adam and Eve become aware of their nakedness? What did they have to do? Simply ate. They disobeyed. Adam in particular. God is, notice who he's directing this to. God is saying, Adam, Adam, I put you in charge of this. This was one thing I told you to do. Who told you? Notice here that all of this shame could have been avoided to begin with if he simply obeyed God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. How many times do we eye up the fruit to see if it actually looks good? How many times have we figuratively debated the serpent about what God really said? How many times have we taken a bite because we thought God was keeping something good from us? Oh, beloved, we are no different than Eve or than Adam. We are a broken people that is often no times different or better than our first parents. Give ear to the Holy Spirit. Obey Him the first time and you will spare yourself a whole world of hurt and trouble. Ask Him to fill you, to guide you, for His grace is sufficient for you. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Notice here that it was Adam that was asked first. Again, he had the responsibility to lead. But it didn't take long for the blame game to begin, did it? How long after sin entered the world was it before man started making excuses for his behavior? No doubt in my mind this happened the same day. Thus began the practice of self-justification in defense of our actions. Self-justification in defense of our sins. Listen, Satan nor anyone else made them sin. He didn't twist their arm and nobody did else. No one else did either. Observe how this justification worsens the sin. By attempting to dodge responsibility and own it, they compounded their sin by lying. This is the effect of sin. And there's another lesson here for us in this. Justification of our sin, self-justification that is, it tends to blind us to God's goodness and His gifts. Let me say that again. When we dodge responsibility, when we don't own up and confess our sin, what happens is we are more likely to be blinded and ignore God's goodness and His gifts to us. Here's what I mean. Adam's essentially blaming God. He's saying, God, if you had given me this woman, I would have never done it. Isn't that what he said? Let's just boil it on down, right? I'm just getting right to the heart of it. God, that woman you made me, she done goofed. It's her fault. The very woman that God made for Adam to be a companion and a helpmate for him. The very woman 
that was there to complete him because God looked over all his creation and said, it's not quite good yet. There's something missing. That good gift, when Adam was lonely, he had no companion. You read this. This is why it's, it all ties together in chapter 2. And, and God looks down and this animal's got a partner and this animal's got a partner. And Adam had nothing. That good gift. Adam sinned and he said, I don't want that gift. It had been better off without it, God. In our haste to make excuses for ourselves, we too forget things that God provides for us. Why do I have to go through this trial, God? Why me? Why do I deserve this? And instead, God, thank you for the very breath of life. Thank you for a soul made in the likeness of you. Thank you that you sent your son to die for me. Thank you for the power to make money and wealth. Adam's blaming of God for his gift of Eve reveals a horrendous ingratitude for what he had been given. I would argue that we too are not much different. And Eve also capitalized on this new blame game. God, if you hadn't allowed that serpent into the garden, I wouldn't have ever noticed that fruit. Oh, how fast we allow the attitudes and the sins of those around us to be to affect us. You see how it works? Peer pressure. Adam starts blaming. I'll try that too. God, it's the serpent's fault, actually. But are we really different? Are we really any different? I know that none of you here in this room have ever blamed your genetics for the shape that your body's in. Uh-oh. Yeah, I went there. Sometimes we even blame the neighborhood we grew up in. Oh, I grew up poor. I didn't know any better. Or maybe because our parents failed to teach us something. Maybe you had an abusive father or an alcoholic mother, and you keep that excuse close to your lips. Some of these circumstances may certainly be true, but they do not make us sin. And if we cannot honestly and fully accept responsibility for our sins before God, then we will certainly reap their grim effects. You see, the fruit of sin is always the same regardless of the excuse that we make before God. The result of sin is always death. But we must confess our sins to receive His life. Like leaven, sin will spread through the whole lump until it's completely ruined. That is the penalty. It is the same today as it was then. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. For the wages of sin is death. Why do we blame others for our dealings? Why do we try to justify our evil thoughts and actions? Why do we get sucked into believing that we are different or better than others? Oh, church, turn with me this morning to Matthew 27 as we get ready to close out. Matthew chapter 27. Do you remember what Pilate did the day of Jesus' trial when he could not convince the crowd to let him go? 
course you remember. Let's read it here in a minute. He rinsed his hands in front of them, signifying that he did not want to take responsibility for the killing of Jesus. And just like Pilate, I think a lot of Christians today try to wash their hands of Jesus' death. We think, think sometimes that we are better. Or somehow, if we were in the garden, we would not have eaten of the fruit. You ever had that thought? I've been there. God, why did you, do, why did you make me first? Certainly the outcome would have been a whole lot better. Why should I be punished for Adam's sin, another might argue? I didn't eat the fruit. I may have done other things, sure, but I didn't eat the fruit, God. Why should I inherit a sinful nature? You ever tried to reason that way? Oh, beloved, you would have eaten too. You need to come to this realization. The truth is that if you don't realize Christ died for your sins... Not just Adam's that we need forgiveness, but for your sins, you will never fully walk in victory and freedom of forgiveness. He died for your sins, not just Adam's. You've got to recognize and to own that every single one of your sins made you responsible for the death of Jesus. You can't lay the blame on Adam. You can't lay it on your relatives, your mom and dad. You can't lay it on the serpent. You can't lay it on the, the Pharisees or Pilate or the Sadducees that accused Jesus. You have to own it. That's what it's all about when we come to the cross. It's owning, it's acknowledging our sinful actions. That's what hung Jesus there on the cross. He certainly could have escaped that death, but he didn't. He died for your forgiveness, for your sins. Matthew 27, let's look at verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Undoubtedly, the context here is a crowd of people that are accepting responsibility for the crucifixion and they're willing to bring a curse upon their own children for Jesus' death if he turned out to be a fraud. That's what they're arguing. That is the context, absolutely. But in light of what we're talking about, of owning sin and relating to Adam's failure and taking the sin on our own back, in light of all that, I wonder if we could not view this morning, this, just view this verse as a blood curse, but as a source of blessing. Hang with me. What if we look at this as an echo back to the Passover lamb, where the blood was over the lintels and on the doorposts? Because of the blood... The angel of death passed over the household. May his blood be on us and over our children. What if today, in the same way, because of the blood of Jesus, God looks us at us the same way as he did that faithful day in Egypt when the firstborns of many households died? He passes over because he sees you made righteous, washed in the blood of Jesus. As gruesome as this thought may be, that we would actually plead his blood beyond me and my children. Without his blood covering, church, without his blood covering, you'll end up in hell. 
When John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that Passover lamb. He must be sacrificed. And he must be eaten the same way they did in Egypt. And he must also, you must also put his blood on the lintels of the door, or the lintels of your mind, and around you, and the doorpost. We have the worship team come up. We're going to close out here in a minute and taking of the Lord's table. See, in a symbolic sense, His blood must be on our hands. I'm not saying that we wanted Jesus to be murdered, but that we would recognize His death was necessary for us not to feel shame. We would recognize that His death was necessary for us not to feel the power of sin in our lives, that is, death. That we would recognize His shed blood was a necessity for us to be in His presence again without fear. That day Adam was in the garden and he was naked and he was afraid because he heard the footsteps. Yet, because of Christ Jesus, we can come to him with boldness. We can enter into that holy place. Ephesians 2.13 tells us that once we were far away from God, but now we have been brought near to him by the blood of Christ. What brought us near? The blood of Christ Jesus. And in the moment, we're going to take of the grape juice and the, the, the bread, which is symbolic of His blood and His body. We're going to remember that Christ Jesus died for us. And I want us to think and pray over us and our families. May His blood be on our head, that I would be washed in it whiter than snow. May you acknowledge that it was your sin that put the Son of God there on the cross. Let His blood cover you in this place this morning. Don't blame anyone else for your sin. Talk to God. Tell Him it was your fault. Tell Him you would have eaten the fruit too. Tell Him you understand and you know that you deserve death. Wash yourselves in the precious blood of Jesus. He promises that He will fill you with His peace. And He promises that if you do these things, that you will no longer feel shame. You will no longer be held captive by the power of sin. And it's this sacrifice on the basis of His love for you, that He beckons you back into His presence. He says, come, come to me, you've been washed. Come back to fellowship, walk with me. Feel the Spirit in the wind of the day again. So as we partake of the Lord's table this morning, let us eat of the Passover lamb. Let us place His blood over the lintels of our mind, over the doorposts of our spirits. Let us seek His presence this morning, having been washed in the blood of Jesus.